Well, it has affected my life even before I was born, because just as my mother realised she was expecting me, my father was diagnosed with leukaemia in the terminal stage. So all the time they were expecting me, they were also expecting him to die. Since I was a young girl, I have seen eight members of my family killed, and seven of them were children. The immediate aftermath of my of my brother's death uh, is still going on. He's dead now, years that I can't count. I still have the feeling I've I've come to terms with it, but I've never got over it. It's something I have never got over. His death was almost simultaneous with my birth. Uh, my mother had to be taken from the delivery table to his deathbed. So my life was uh, obviously profoundly affected by this. And the first thing I was aware of was that my father was dead and I didn't have a father like other children. We were extremely lucky in that we had grandparents who took us in, my mother's parents. And they were quite young. They were only about 50. And uh, my mother was 25 and she had three children under five. And they took us in, and my mother had to get on with her education and training to to try to support us all. But we had a wonderful life with our grandparents, who really took the place of parents. And uh, that was all a very successful and happy arrangement. But then when I was six years old, my grandparents died very suddenly. My grandmother died of a heart attack in front of me. She got up in the morning and she was perfectly healthy she'd never been sick in her life and by midday she was dead and the tragedy then was that my grandfather had a weak heart and he was okay as long as he wasn't subjected to any shocks or or strong emotions and of course his wife's unexpected sudden death really made him very sick as well and he never recovered so he died a couple of months later and uh we found ourselves, my brother and sister and I, with with our mother. And she was really the only relation we had because we were a very small family. There was nobody else. And we lived, I remember, for, for my entire childhood, we all lived in this constant fear that she would be taken to because we had seen how fragile life is and how people in, in their best age could just die from one minute to the next. And... It gave a terrible insecurity that we lived with, a terrible fear and and anxiety and insecurity. And when I became a teenager, this changed into something else. It became a kind of fierce determination to be independent, not to need anyone, because I knew you could never rely on having anyone there when you needed them. So the answer was to be your own person and, and to have absolutely nobody that you relied on, which was in a way a good thing. My brother Gerard had been in a coma for two months and we expected him to live. One weekend I got the call from my father telling me that he was definitely dying. The only way I could get over, because I didn't want to be standing in an airport on standby, I could be stuck there for three days, I took the coach over from Kerry to London. My last telephone call home was from a public phone box on a Sunday morning and my brother Peter told me that 
mum and dad were in the hospital and he was staying at home. The reason he was at home was simply to take my call. And I said, I won't communicate with you now till I arrive. You'll see me tomorrow morning. Then I went home and I sat down on the edge of the bed while Jenny got her bags. And I felt something being pulled out of my body. And I felt myself wanting to cry. And because this feeling was inexplicable, I decided to fight it. I wasn't going to cry. I just felt so weary, and I felt some electrical presence being drawn out through my body. I sat on the edge of the bed and clenched my fists and just tried to get hold of this. And while that was happening, I could hear my wife. She was in the bathroom washing her hands, and she was calling to her aunt, and she was saying, Nancy, will you answer the door? The doorbell is ringing. Nancy, will you answer the door? The doorbell is ringing. Will you answer it? Now, Nancy wasn't answering the doorbell because the doorbell wasn't ringing. And it didn't even strike me as being odd because we didn't have a doorbell. We didn't actually have electricity in that house. My wife was convinced that she was hearing a doorbell. At that moment, my mother-in-law, when she heard my wife calling for someone to open the door, she knew who was at the door. It was my brother. And she knew that at that moment... He was dying. And as I sat on the bed, he was dying. The electricity, the, the force that was being pulled from my body was the feeling I felt when the link that was keeping us together on this earth was being cut. When we arrived in London the following morning, we were told that it was at that very moment that my brother Jared died. He had communicated to me in a physical, psychic way. He had communicated to my wife Jenny through the ringing of a doorbell that didn't exist, and that was a folkloric way. That's what we hear throughout our culture. Then when I was 17, my best friend died. And again, it was it was the most terrible thing to happen because she was the most vibrant, dynamic, beautiful young girl, perfectly healthy, but she died due to a medical error. And we had been out to a disco the night before and, and the next day we were due to meet again and she rang up and she said she wasn't feeling well. She thought she, she had eaten something or whatever. And that afternoon she was dead. And that left me with with a very negative effect because my, my childhood anxiety, as I, as I say, I had managed to turn into independence. But this just gave me the feeling that everything was pointless. Because if, if life was so uncertain, what was the point of committing yourself to anything, to any person, to any plan, to any project? And it had a very destructive effect on me because I just felt that life was a matter of, of spending it in the best way possible, but there was no point to anything. And I was just looking upon life as, as something that you were stuck with and you had to kind of make the best of it, but uh, there was very little point in doing anything with it because you had no guarantee for anything. Which weekend was our last days of freedom before the intercert exams began in June of that same year? 
I was going to a dance in Charlestown with my sister and older brother. But first we would help at the turf, as was the custom at that time, to cut and save our own. My ten-year-old brother hated the bog and begged my father to let him go to a neighbour who was moving cattle that day. We were on the bog until evening and when we returned home there was word that my brother was hurt earlier in the day and for us to go to the neighbour's house to collect him. I remember when I walked into the neighbour's house. Robert was lying on a sofa. I walked over to him and he seemed to be asleep. I touched his shoulder and he woke up. He sat up and blood came out of his nose and ears. Young as I was, I knew he was very ill and told Mummy to send him to hospital quickly. Robert was sent to hospital and next morning at six o'clock, a neighbour that had a telephone came to tell us Robert died at ten to six of a massive brain hemorrhage. Of all the pain and grief I experienced in my life, Robert's death was the hardest thing I had to deal with. I remember well the day he was born, the 1st of September 1963. It was a Sunday and I was the first of the children to see him. He was born at home and Mummy let me carry him to the door and back. From that moment on, I loved Robert with a love that had no strings attached or no fear that anything would ever happen to destroy it. When we got to Sligo Hospital that summer morning, Robert looked to me as if he was asleep. He was still warm, and only the pallor of his beloved face and the dim light of death in his eyes told its own story. If my beloved Robert died that day, then some part of me that was reserved for him alone died too, and he still holds it, in his lonely grave in Clunamehan, just outside Bunanadden, where generations of Daddy's people lie at rest. Daddy buried his beloved child with his parents, thereby giving up his claim to lie beside him some day. But he needed to think that Granny would hold Robert close and that he would not have to lie alone. To me, it's a gift. I remember when he died, I, remember, I thought, he's given me something. And for a while, I felt as if I was becoming him. I put on some of his clothes. The only thing that could fit me was a leather jacket, um, and which no longer fitted him. He was over six foot when he died. And a T-shirt. I wore the T-shirt until it literally fell to pieces. And at the beginning, I could feel him coming into me through his clothing. And that's not simply saying that he was living in me, because he wasn't. He was infinite. He'd become greater than he ever was when he was alive. He remembered the sweet smell of apples rotting in the grass, the gentle footsteps of a beetle across his face, the bud of her nipple, the shadows of grass stalks against her flesh, her lips that lent to kiss, and all in the moment that the saddle slipped 
throwing him against the beckoning earth that called him to join with the rotting fruit, the slow dance of beetles through soil and grit, the grasses taking root against his skin, and the freshly dug grave that knew his name. That poem's about Oshin. Oshin came from Tiananog, the land of the undying, and he died. But you know, the most immortal thing about Oshin is his death. That's why everybody talks about him, because he died. So he didn't die. In dying, in that one moment when he died, he became truly immortal. It's it's interesting because I was in a kind of destructive mood. I was I was just going out every night and trying to have fun and trying to forget my my worries. And I, I suppose I was really suffering from a depression in in the wake of this bereavement. It was also a difficult bereavement because I remember my mother saying to me, "I can't understand why you're so upset about your friend dying. She's not even a member of the family." As if bereavement was something that that you had to be related by blood to experience on, on a profound level, and um, I was very unhappy at this stage, and I was very careless with myself and my life because, as I said, nothing seemed to have any value to me. And what happened was quite logical when I look back because I had a car crash, a very severe car crash, where I was driving on my own. I was driving in weather conditions that no sane person would have driven in if they had had a choice, which I had, and I went out in it. It was a very bad snowstorm. This was in Sweden, where I grew up. And what happened was that the car was just lifted off the road and it hit a lamppost. And the crash was so severe, the lamppost just split the car in two. And the gearbox was found 150 yards behind the car. And fortunately, I was wearing a seat belt, except that that probably wouldn't have made much difference uh, because the steering wheel hit me in the stomach. Uh, it didn't hit me in the chest. I would have died instantaneously if, if it had. And I remember being um, taken to hospital in an ambulance. I remember take, being taken into a casualty ward. And um, there was no obvious injury to me, so they just said they, they would keep me in for observation. Because what they didn't know was that even at that stage I was dying of internal bleeding. And they rang my mother and said I would be discharged in the morning, I'd been very lucky, and so on. But in the morning when they came to, to wake me up to tell me I could go home, they discovered they couldn't wake me. And uh, they then decided to, to do an x-ray to see what was wrong, because my pulse was almost gone. And they couldn't see anything on the x-ray because of the internal bleeding. So uh, they decided to operate. Well, they had to, to find out what was wrong. And what they discovered was, was the worst possible scenario, that my, my liver had been ruptured. And this was in 1967, when a ruptured liver was considered to be inoperable. It was a fatal injury. And there was just nothing that could be done except leaving the patient to die. And there was a young surgeon there, and he said, well, look, we have a 19-year-old woman and life is ahead of her, we can't just leave her to die, we have to do something. And he had heard of a new method whereby you could try and repair internal organs, and he decided to have a go. And, as you can see, he succeeded. But it was a very close-run situation, and I was so close to death that I actually 
experienced the moment when I decided which way to go. When one breath determined whether I would live or whether I, I wouldn't take that breath. So that is probably the most important experience of my life. I remember that particular moment and like a lot of other people have said who have been in a similar situation is that you have this experience of being in darkness it's like a dark tunnel and you see this light beckoning at the end and I remember the appeal of that light and the desire to go to it and there were three young nurses who were minding me in the intensive care unit. This was after the surgery. And they knew or they had been told or the instruments showed them, I don't know which, but, but they knew that if I closed my eyes and drifted away at that moment, I'd never come back. And they were pulling and tugging at me and begging and pleading with me not to die. And I can see even now the picture of those three faces over me and, and tears running down their faces and they were just begging me to stay with them. And I didn't want to stay at all. I just wanted to go. I knew there was something much better waiting for me. And I had absolutely nothing at that moment to tie me to life. I, couldn't, I, I even tried to think, think of things like my mother and my boyfriend or anything, my dog or anything, and they were just gone that they meant nothing. I, I was totally released from all that. And all I wanted was to continue on my way. But because these nurses were so desperate and they were begging and they were putting so much of themselves into this, I felt kind of sorry for them. And I just felt this obligation that if, if it means so much to them, I can't just go. I have to make the effort and come back. And it was like a sacrifice, really, to me, and so I did as they asked me, and I came back. Nothing will ever prepare us for the phone call or the Garda at the door to tell us such news. When we look back at the awful moment that we did receive such a message, we do not recall it as we would a normal happening. Everything is slowed down in our recap of events, like something played out in slow motion. The silence that lets us know better than words that something awful is wrong. The feeling of fear that starts in the pit of our stomach and envelops our whole body. Then the words. I am afraid I have some bad news for you. The fleeting seconds when you wonder who, what has happened and how bad is it. Your brother was involved in an accident, he tells me. Oh my God, no. Which one of my much-loved brothers? Who is it, I ask, not wanting to know? How bad is he? What hospital is he in? Look, is your husband here? Would you like to sit down? The Garda asks, taking hold of my clammy hand and leading me into the kitchen. It's the lad at home, he tells me, and it's very bad. No, no, I silently scream, wanting to kill the messenger. It can't be. He is only ten years old, the baby of us all. Mam and Dad's salvation when my other brother was killed five years ago. The kitchen recedes along with the faces of my husband and the Garda. 
Fate would never play us the same hand again so soon. I don't want to have to face the reality of another goodbye, another vacant place, to be strong for someone else, and another white coffin. I gratefully sink into the darkness of unconsciousness. The mother is in the fields, calling for her child, turning around and around in the fields, the high, dilapidated fields of the hill, calling for her child. The old woman is turning round and round in the fields, calling for her dead son to return, the decrepit call of a crow coming from her mouth, dancing through the reddening ferns, calling hopelessly for her dead son. I wrote a story based on the invisible, based on the dead. I felt they were talking to me, the dead in Carks, where I was living at that time. And I wrote about an old woman who'd lost her son. And in the end of the story, she has a vision of all the dead children, the aborted children, the miscarried children, the murdered children but not of her own child. The children dance off into the night, disappear into clumps of fern, stray into cracks between rocks, dissolve into fence posts, gates, rusted milk churns, become the accumulated rubbish of the farm. The old woman goes back to the house, back up to the bedroom. Her husband lies heavily on the bed, asleep, the ruined mattress subdued beneath him. She climbs into the bed and falls asleep, dreaming the same events in the same sequence. She calls out for her dead son in her sleep. Come back, calls the old woman. Come back. Well, of course, now I realise that, that these girls... These three nurses I never saw again. You know, I was, was out of the intensive care unit after another couple of days, and I have no idea who they were, what their names were. You know, they, they've just passed through. But, of course, they, they represent all the people to whom I would one day matter. And as you go through life, you realise that, that your life is important to certain people. First of all, your, your immediate family, of course. But there are other people as well that you come across in life to whom your existence does make a difference. And I think that is really what, what gives life its meaning, that there are people there whose life becomes happier or better or easier, perhaps, because you are there. And it's for them that you are here. And that is why my decision to stay is something I've never regretted. Because there are always people to whom your life will make sense, even if it doesn't make sense to you. And people, when they get very depressed, for example, they say that all the people who commit suicide, who, who consider committing suicide, believe that their life is of no importance to anybody. And it's only when you feel that that you would consider ending your own life. And I think there's no life that is of no consequence to anybody. But it's also depending on yourself whether it is or not. It took all my courage to go inside. 
first the sea of faces that watched my every move as I got stiffly from the car after the long, unreal journey from Donegal. As I struggled to enter the house through the mass of humanity that filled the kitchen and spilled outwards onto the street, their body packed closely together for warmth as much as for lack of space. I could feel their sympathy flowing over me in waves as if it was stored up for such an occasion and was now released towards me as I made my way through the gap that opened up as if by magic to allow me gain entry to the sitting room. My eyes go at once to his face, papery white, a twinge of blue on his beautiful lips, the life force dimmed forever in his sky-blue eyes. Was there ever one on earth so fair? My mind reels with the horror of it all. Will the sun ever shine as brightly as it did for a short stay on earth with us? I drag my battered body towards him, a scream forming somewhere inside my soul, reality mingling with the unreality of this living nightmare. I will not allow myself to faint again as I reach out my hand to touch his hands. The chubby baby hands that I remembered and loved so well that were always grubby from digging to find a snail or worm had grown long and graceful, giving promise of height that would now never be realised. I look around at my mother, father, brothers and sisters who stand with a vacant look of shock that surely must mirror my own. Moments pass, or is it hours, as the murmur of silted conversation drifts on the air, broken by the weeping of those who can cry and the gulping sobs of those who cannot. In the background stand the guards, priest and the undertaker, waiting to carry out the necessary rituals of death but unwilling for the moment to intrude and snap the tender threads of our last moments together as the family we were up until three hours ago. I'm a poet, so I kind of think metaphorically. And to me, life and death is like, um, it's like a narrow wardrobe and the door's open and I'm standing with one foot inside the wardrobe and one foot outside the wardrobe. And outside the wardrobe... The birds are singing, there's abundant light, there's a beautiful woman with legs all the way up to her armpits, and that to me is life. But I'm half inside the wardrobe, and the wardrobe is very narrow and very dark, and it goes on for eternity. And I can't close the door, and I don't really know which way to go, in or out. Now, in the morning, I could get run over by a bus, and then death is engaging with me. But in the meantime, I want to engage with death. And I do that with the only instrument left to me, and that's my life. I've had quite a lot of friends that I've lost and also the older members of my family. Uh, It sometimes comes in spades. I'm sure that a lot of people experience this. We had, my husband and I had a period a few years ago when out of nine members of our immediate family, we lost five over about 12 months and it leaves you again as I remember from my childhood with this terrible insecurity you know who is next and how long is anyone going to last but I have learned now and especially from my experience of being so close to death I have learned now that it's a good thing that we have no guarantee 
for what's going to happen to us because it helps us appreciate life more while we have it. And it was quite immature of me when I was younger to feel that because there are no guarantees, everything is pointless. Because it's the other way around. It's it's because we have no guarantees that we have to make the most of life. It becomes so precious because every day we wake up, we don't know if this is our last day on earth. We have no guarantee that it isn't. I mean, nobody, you or I or anybody listening to us now, can guarantee that that we'll be here tomorrow. And for that reason, one can't afford to waste life or to waste any moment of it. And one can't afford to ruin it by things that are really unworthy of it, pettiness and meanness and envy and all these quibbles and trivia that people waste their lives with. If you if you look upon it in the perspective that every day is a gift and that you don't take it for granted that, that you have it or that you'll have it forever, because all our days are numbered, as we know, and if you look upon it like that, in that perspective, you can actually enjoy life more and you can make more of every day. We waked our dead at home. For us as a family, this was important. We wanted to say our final goodbyes where we had lived and loved together. So we were able to sit beside his coffin and say goodbye during the evening and through the long night and into the evening of the second day that we waked him. I suppose we felt we had more control in our own home and were not restricted by constraints of timekeeping that might apply in a morgue or funeral parlour. The kindness of people who tried to comfort and help us was beyond words. They sat and talked, and they sat in silence, and now with the passage of time I see their sorrow for the bright-eyed child who was no more. Just because he was my brother, my grief was inward and all-consuming, but a community grieves the death of innocence. Sometimes the sitting room was full of people, but for brief periods, especially towards dawn of our last day together, it was just me and him, alone for mere seconds when I could whisper words of despair and love that I knew I could never say again. We stayed with him to the end until the last prayer was said and we kissed his cold white cheek and they covered his face and put in the golden screws in the lid of a small white coffin. Um, well, it's funny. I think like most people, maybe this isn't true. I feel immortal. I don't think I'm ever going to die. In the morning I could get run over by a bus, but I'm, I know I'm not going to stop then. Oh, mortality. I just don't think it really exists. Mortality is that thing that happens to other people that you love and they've gone. I, I don't think in those terms. I just don't think in those terms. I, I'm, I believe in like, death comes into my writing by the back door. It's only afterwards when I look at it, I see that it's full of people dying, usually women. And I know that that goes back to looking for this alter ego of mine, um, looking for myself. And it's not simply being in touch with my feminine self. Uh, I am a feminine self, even though I'm a man. And that's got nothing to do with sexuality. It's just a, a feeling it's just a presence it's just a conviction 
I remember I was working on a building site when I was um, 17 and we were talking about death. The thing about navvies, and I loved working on a building site, is that men that work on building site, builders, they're really philosophical. I mean, my father was a navvy. He worked with his bare hands all his life. And I was one for a while. And, you know, the work is horrible. But you've got plenty of time for talking. And I remember, I don't know how we were talking about death, but I remember saying, well, you know, I've made an arrangement with God and I'm not going to die until I'm about 100. And I hadn't made an arrangement with God. I don't even know who God is. It was a lie. But, you know, I might have made an arrangement with God because I have the conviction that I will not die. Funnily enough, I was on my way uh, to my stepfather's funeral. And this was during the time when, when everybody was dying around us. It was the fourth death we had in three months or something like that. And I was on my way to his funeral in Sweden when we were suddenly told that uh, the plane had a problem, as the captain called it. And he was... Um, very sorry to tell us that we were in a full emergency situation and we were going to attempt to crash land. But before we could do that, we had to circle for an hour to get rid of excess fuel. And uh, it was a very strange experience to be sitting on your own, surrounded by strangers in a confined space, facing the possibility that this was your last hour on Earth. And... That is, of course, when, when I discovered the great weakness in my argument that you appreciate each other more if you, if you can't take each other for granted because I had a very young child at the time. He was two years old. And the idea, not that I would die or that I wouldn't have any more things to enjoy in life, but the idea that he would lose his mother and that he would be looking for me for days and months to come and I would never be there again. That, I think, is one of the most difficult emotions I've ever had to cope with. And this is the whole weakness of, of love, that when you really do love somebody and you know that they need you, death becomes a frightening prospect because you know what kind of loss that would mean to them. It's not for your own sake, but, but it's for theirs. And again, I find that every day that I can give my child, that I can be with him and he with me, is a tremendous gift. And one can only be grateful for each day that's given. But again, you can never take it for granted. The night we took him to the church cars stretched back in a long line along the narrow country road that led to a Connery church. The queue was endless after the rosary was said, but people stood patiently in the winter cold outside our tiny church to await their turn to shake our hands and gaze in sorrow at the small white coffin with the teddy bear wreath lying on its lid. It struck at the hearts of everyone that a little boy who had come among us to brighten our lives for so short a time had so soon returned to God. 
After they had all gone and the silence that is part of a church settled upon us, we were reluctant to depart. We did not want to leave him there and we did not want to return home. We stood about in small groups and talked in muted tones, but our words seemed to be carried upwards to the vaulted ceiling and echo backwards, disturbing the sanctity of his last night on earth. So we lingered just long enough to say a silent prayer and glance backwards from the doorway to see my mother place a single red rose beside the teddy bear and follow us slowly out into the freezing winter's night. Death is real. The physical death is extremely real. Um, you know, I, I've, I've, I've even said to people, and I've been making this clear over the past few months, I don't really want to... If I'm, if I'm run over in the morning by a bus, then I'm dead. That's fine. If uh, I die suddenly, I'm dead. I don't want to lie in a hospital bed or my own bed, mouldering away. If... I found that I had something like cancer or if my intellectual faculties were beginning to go, I would take myself off into the void. And that's not suicide and it's not euthanasia, which I don't believe in. I think euthanasia is is an institutionalizing and anything that institutionalizes something is for me profoundly corrupt and wicked, to use a very loaded term. What I want to do if I get warned that I'm going, I'm going to engage with my death. And I've warned my wife, I've told friends that I'm going to go down to the sea on a, on a dark, stormy night when the tide is high and I'm going to swim. I'm going to swim for my life and I'm going to keep swimming until I can't swim anymore. And that's an ambition I have. My ambition is that I outwit death and that it doesn't hit me suddenly, that it doesn't hit me by a bus, that it doesn't hit me with a coronary, that I don't have a mental lapse, that I can outwit it and get there first, but get there in an active way, engage with it, the same way as I shave my head. I prevent my hair from growing, but my hair is there. But it's an act of my will that I shave my head. It'll be an act of my will that I die. Unless, of course... I do get run over by that bus, which means that death has engaged with me. And if that happens, I'll just get on with it. I came close enough to death to understand, in my own mind anyway, what it is. And it is not something frightening it's something very reassuring and i mean absolutely no doubt at all that we're going on to something and we're going on to something better and i believe death is a release from life and again whenever i am faced with death in someone close to me or someone i know i don't find it tragic at all that people die i'm i'm almost pleased for them I'm sorry for the ones who are left behind. I'm sorry for the bereaved because it's a terrible thing to be left without someone you love and someone that perhaps you needed or, or relied on. But for the person themselves, 
it means that they have continued on their journey. And it's a little bit like when our children grow up and we have to send them into the world. In the same way, when someone is ready to go on into the next level of consciousness or, or whatever we can call it, when they are ready to move on, it's wrong to hold them back. And I think people move on at the time when it's right for them. And I think it's a very negative thing to try to cling to them once they are gone. I think we have to let them go. And even though we should preserve their memory and and be very happy for all the memories that they've left us with, I think that excessive grief is not good, neither for for the people themselves or in the greater scheme of things. I think it's important to accept that they had to go and we had to let them, however much we wanted to keep them with us. We have a duty to let them go when when the time has come.